Well, good morning, everyone. We have two major scriptures to preach on this morning. One is found in Matthew 28, the last three verses of the chapter and of the book. And I invite you to turn there. It's on page 835 in the Pew Bible. And the other, and it would be good to find this and go ahead and mark it, is Second um, Corinthians chapter 5, uh, beginning in verse 10. And that's found on page 966 in the Pew Bible. This message is entitled, Ambassadors for Christ. And I just want to begin by giving you a picture that I have in my mind that I want to try to communicate in the message. And it is we live in a world of people and God's people whom you are permeate this society around us. We move into it. We occupy it. We penetrate it. And as we go, we have something precious, contagious to give, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The opportunity for this world to get in on what God has done for them and is doing for them. We are the ambassadors for Christ that accomplish that. A picture of penetration and permeation. It might be a picture that that Jesus gave as uh, the yeast or the leaven that permit, uh, penetrates the flour and causes it all, it goes into all parts of the flour and causes it all to rise. We move into our world in that kind of way. And let me give you, <clears throat> I want to give you three examples, three illustrations, briefly, of what I'm talking about. As an 18-year-old young man, I was absolutely confused, purposeless, at the edge of adulthood, but not having a clue as to what my life was going to be or ought to be. Not a Christian, not raised in church. I had a Bible. I read some of its stories, but I had no direction. I was at the beginning of my life, and at that point, I was messed up. I do not mean I was in a a terrible sin situation. Uh, as, as some might have been, but I did not know what was going on. I was a lost ball in the high weeds. I had a new job, and a lot depended on, I was on trial, and a lot depended on things going well, and things were not going well. And on the day that I was to find out if I had a job, <clears throat> I was a surveyor working on a precise level crew. And I got the pickup. Everything went wrong. I got the pickup truck stuck. Uh, I ran over a chicken just before that. Uh, uh, 
I obeyed the party chief uh, to give him a shot on a benchmark that was way too far away for pre precise leveling. These things were wrong. I could not imagine that I was going to get the job. Now I got the pickup truck stuck, and a man came along the road, and I knew how to get pickup trucks out. I was a country boy, but it would not come out. I was not even in a mud hole. And a man came along the road and said, can I help you? And I said, sure. And he did exactly the same things I had been doing, with one exception. And the truck rolled out like a tow truck pulled it out. And my eyes popped. And the one thing that was different was he was singing under his breath some little song, Jesus, help me now. I wish I knew what the song was. But every time I take the Lord's Supper and I remember what Jesus did for me on the cross, I remember that man. And I thank God for that man. I went away from that scene saying, I'm going to find out about this Jesus business. And find out I did, but it took me six months. Nobody sat down and showed me the way. The next day, my buddy's mother invited me to church, and I went. And the people at church didn't show me the way. I had to find my own way. Finally found my way. That man is the point that I want to make this morning. Secondly, that is, that is, first go back to that man. There is an example of one Christian who simply can make a point for God in his everyday experience. And he went on his way. Sometimes it might be for the full gospel gets presented. And I think in this case of Deacon Philip in uh, the book of Acts. And he had been in Samaria. But God said, go down this way uh, and I'll show you. And he went and hitched a ride with an Ethiopian. And the Ethiopian was reading the Bible. And Philip said to him, do you understand what you're reading? How can I unless somebody explain it to me? And there he's presented the whole gospel to him. He had that opportunity. Sometimes if you open your mouth, you will have that opportunity of presenting the whole thing, the whole gospel. And the man was saved and carried the gospel on back to Ethiopia. I think of another man. His name is Buche Talahili. Buche is an Indonesian national who lives in the Sterling area. He is a Christian man. Buche, about a year ago, was on a mission trip to the Union of South Africa. He was going to Cape Town to share the gospel with others on the team in the slums of Cape Town. They flew on Delta out of the hub in Atlanta to Johannesburg and as they, on their way to Cape Town. As they arrived in Johannesburg, they go through, as all travelers do, through immigration. All the others on the team had American United States passports recognized without the need for a visa, especially. But Butche's passport was an Indonesian passport. Indonesian passports were not recognized without getting a specific visa from the uh, South African uh, embassy or consulate, which he did not have. 
So Butche is sidetracked, taken out from the team, and said to go sit in this little room with some other people for several hours. And as I heard Butche tell about it, he said, I had to go in this little room and sit there for three hours with these other people. He, 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 he. You get the point. Read with me what Jesus said to us. Verse 18 of Matthew 28. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Permit me to give a little bit more literal translation to it. Beginning in verse 19. Going, therefore, make disciples of all people groups, ethnos, people groups, and so forth. We call this the Great Commission. And somehow, by giving it that title, we think it's for great people, not us ordinary Christians. It's the Christian commission. It's for all of us. Uh, There is in this commission of Jesus one imperative, and the imperative is make disciples. The grammar of it is in the imperative tense. It is make disciples. It's not... It's not an option. It's a command. It's an imperative. I submit to you that this is the primary purpose of the church, to glorify God by making disciples. This involves investing in relationships. Sometimes you'll have but a few minutes to create a relationship, as that man did on the road where he was singing the little song about Jesus help me now. But it reached me. And these many years later, it still holds me because it led me to Christ. It involves investing in relationships. And I want to say, when I say it that way, that lost people around us are not projects. They are persons for whom Jesus died, whom God loves, whom we love, And we invest in them in relationships as precious people in the sight of God. And we talk about making disciples. I want to suggest to you what should be obvious. We invest, first of all, in making disciples of our own children. Uh, The the scripture in Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 and 7, where Moses laid it out for the people of Israel, said And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. In other words, in the processes of life, you make disciples with your children, but also with others around you. You continue with other people whom you contact in your daily lives. But this imperative is modified by three participles. Participles ending in I-N-G. And they are these. Going, 
First of all, today the church is gathered. We're here. Tomorrow, the church will be going. We will be in our homes. We will be in public schools. We will be on college campuses. We will be in corporate offices. We will be in government offices. We will be on commuter buses. We will be aboard airliners. We will be on athletic buildings. We will be in athletic on athletic fields. We will be on golf courses. We will be in public parks. We will be in restaurants. We will be in daycare centers. We'll be on military bases. We'll be on farmers markets. We'll be in repair shops. We'll be in car dealerships. Uh, we'll be in hospitals. Some as medical personnel, some as patients. We'll be in grocery stores. We'll be in courtrooms. We'll be in jails and prisons. Some will be in nursing homes. We'll be everywhere that retired people go. We'll be God's people everywhere because God has his people everywhere. And everywhere we go, there will be other people who do not yet know Jesus Christ as Savior. One pastor I used to know calls them pre-Christians. Let's hope he's right about that. Many will be with people via the Internet. The going in this scripture is not just where you happen to go. While that has truth in it, the going as it's presented in this Christian commission has a sense of intentionality about it. As we go, we are doing so with intention. There is an imperative about this going. So making disciples while we are going is construed by Jesus as part of the fabric of our lives. Not something we kind of attach and add on, but actually is woven into our lives making disciples. And one might say that we leave our making disciples button turned on all the time, wherever we are. You know, this is the way um, the gospel spread in the first century. Uh, and as Pastor Stephen pointed out, I think it was last Sunday, but anyway, recently, in Acts 8, uh, this gospel spread, not by the apostles who stayed in Jerusalem, but because of persecution, the Christians were scattered. It went from Judea and Samaria. In chapter 8, verses 1 and 4, we find that Philip is a witness to an Ethiopian. It goes to uh, Samaria. We find it going to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch of Syria. Uh, in the book of Acts, you see it spreading in the same fashion. You see that in, in uh, Paul's planting the church at Ephesus. He is pastoring there in the mid-50s. But by the time of the Apostle John in the 90s, it is all over the Asian province that today we call Turkey. Uh, it is there and it's carried there 
primarily by not the apostles, but the lay people of the church. Um, we find that uh, in AD about 60, there are churches in Ephesus and Colossae and Laodicea. But if you read in Revelation, there are churches in Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and Cyrus and, and uh, Philadelphia also. In Thessalonica, where Paul went on further and planted the church in Thessalonica, he writes to them in his first letter, he says, in verse chapter 1, verse 8, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone everywhere, has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. I have a friend. Uh, he works in a, uh, an office for a government contracting uh, company, and uh, he rides a commuter bus to work, leaving Round Hill like 5 o'clock in the morning. And I'm amazed at things like that. My clock doesn't even have numbers on it before 7. They're not even there. But as he commutes, he is developing a relationship with another commuter rider. And that, that commuter rider has issues in his life and they are praying together. And soon they, he will be sharing the gospel with him. That's the kind of thing I'm talking about. He is doing this, and here is the key, because he has an eternal perspective on life. On life. Uh, Buche Talahili uh, continued his uh, testimony about his mission trip to South Africa. They uh, would not let him enter South Africa because... He did not have the appropriate papers, and uh, he had to be, uh, he said, they called me into the office to process my papers to send me back to the United States. And so, so there I was talking to a South African official. He, 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 he. That's where he's coming from. He has an eternal uh, perspective. While he's in that little room, he says he's there with a number of Muslims, and there is a Muslim gentleman from India that he's sharing with. But a gentleman from Nigeria is really tuned in on what he's doing. This is the normal course of his life because he has a, an eternal uh, perspective. He gets then sent back to Delta's hub is Atlanta. He now finds himself back in Atlanta. But his luggage is in South Africa. So they call him into the luggage area to get his luggage processed. So he says, as he described it to me, I talked to a Chinese lady in the luggage uh, arrangement. He, he, he. That's who he is. Let me observe about Buche. Every one of those experiences is a negative. But he says, God makes my appointments for me. And he sees every one of them, while he didn't get to go to Cape Town and share in the slums, he sees every one of them as a normal process of life in which he as a Christian overflows uh, with Christ. You know, the picture I get is this. In uh, in 2 Corinthians 8, I think about verse 9, 
Paul is talking about an offering for the suffering saints in Jerusalem and Judea. And he says in this discussion about the offering, he says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good work. And I have a, a simple picture of this, and I hope you will get this picture for yourself. God is able to make all grace abound to you. So here you are, a Christian, and God's all grace is abounding to you. It's a rainstorm dumping on you. All grace is abounding to you. And you're filled up so that always having all sufficiency in everything, so your life is taken care of, and you're moving about among society so that having an abundance for everything, you have an abundance for every good deed. And with God's all grace overflowing you, you just overflow on everybody around you. That's what this is about. That's what Buche is doing. He's just overflowing. God's grace that is abounding toward him and flowing through him. And, you know, it looks to me like while we are not robots, I kind of picture R2-D2 going around just overflowing on everybody. That's what we Christians are, overflowing with God's grace, not as robots, but as loving ambassadors of Christ on people whom God loves so much that he gave his son. The other two participles that modify that imperative are baptizing, where you introduce them to the triune God and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, that is, to know what God said and to obey his commands. It's that simple. I want you to notice in that great Christian commission, the alls, all authority. All authority has been given to me, therefore going. You are authorized, but he has all authority, and he authorizes you and me. All authority, all nations, all that I have commanded you, all the days. Secondly, let's look at this passage in Second Corinthians chapter 5. In this particular passage, Paul has planted the church at Corinth. He's been there a while. <clears throat> he's now away. He's, <clears throat> excuse me, he's going back. <clears throat> there has been some trouble in Corinth. There are some folks at Corinth who are not happy with Paul, kind of picking a fight with him, trying to criticize him and belittle him and bring him down. And so some of this is written so that they will understand where Paul is coming from in his witness and his ministry. And in describing his witness and ministry, he gives us some parameters or ways of understanding what our witness can and should be. And so follow with me as I read verses 10 through 21. <clears throat> For we, we, verse 10, for, of 2 Corinthians 5. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others, but what we are is known to God. And I hope it is known also to you, to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about our outward appearance and not about what is in our heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. 
For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ has reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, making his appeal through God, making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I want to notice several things in this passage. One is the Christian is motivated. Paul here gives two motivations. He gives others earlier in the letter, but there are two here. One is it's the fear of the Lord in verse 11. Um, we stand before the judgment seat of Christ in verse 10. Um, the Christian is accountable. You and I are accountable for what we do in the body, in our human body, or what we don't do. The absence of what we do we are accountable and the fear of the Lord is a motivation call it what it is that's what it is and if that fear of the Lord doesn't motivate you you need to go back and have another check in with the Lord secondly the apostle Paul says that he is motivated by the love of Christ in verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us because, and he he spells it out a little bit. In verses 14 and 15, the thrust of that is that the love of Christ that motivated Jesus to die for all is the love that motivates us. And that becomes our love. It's the love that motivates you and me to share the good news of Jesus' atoning death. And we communicate that. The Christian is motivated. Secondly, the Christian lives for Christ in verse 15. He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him. Now, here's the way I understand that applying to what we're talking about today for us who are ambassadors for Christ. I get up in the morning, 
And I think about, now I've got this and this and this and this and this to do today. I have this agenda. That's living for Glenn. I get up in the morning and I say, God, what is on your agenda today? Who are the people you have made an appointment for with me? Constantly then through the day, I'm looking for those appointments. Constantly, I'm looking for his agenda. My agenda is subservient to his agenda, not the other way around. It is not that I take my agenda and I attach him to it. It is I take his agenda and I attach myself to it. Let me give you this example. Several years ago, I was in Guyana, South America. In Guyana, there are three major um, religions, maybe four. One of them is Hindu religion, brought there by people from India after the British colonial government ceased using black slavery uh, for the sugar plantations in uh, Guyana. The Hindu has a a panoply of gods, many gods, and he would be glad to take your Jesus and put him on the shelf with his other gods. And we understand that that is not the way of Christianity. The way of Christianity is that Jesus is Lord, period. So we cannot take Jesus and put him as one of the items on our agenda in the similar fashion. It's as wrong. We are his, he is Lord. There are people and we are his and we are on his agenda. It simply works that way. Those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. That is, our lives are ordered by Jesus' agenda, not by our agenda. It will help us to understand this also. We live in two worlds. We live in the world that is obvious to us day by day, the material, busy world. It's the world of our busyness. It's the world of our get things done day. It's the world of uh, the people that we bump into. But this world in which we live, this worldly world, is part of a spiritual world, an eternal world that encompasses all of it. And we are ambassadors for the kingdom of God. We are ambassadors for that kingdom to this world. And we always move in this world remembering whom we represent and for whom we are ambassadors and by whom we are authorized, by whom we are commissioned, for whom we speak and for whom we literally live on this earth. We live in this physical, material, busy world. But we live in that 
spiritual, eternal world representing God. And so there we cannot um, do as those Hindus do or as we are prone to do, teach, treat Jesus as an add-on. We are the add-on to his agenda, not vice, not vice versa. Secondly, in verse 16, first of all, we live on his agenda. We are his ambassadors. Secondly, Paul says in verse 16, we regard no one according to the flesh. What he's saying, we do not evaluate people in a fleshly manner. So I used to even evaluate Jesus that way, uh, but not anymore. Uh, we see people from a spiritual perspective. Every person that I'm running to in my day, uh, I see them from spiritual uh, potential. I see them as people whom Jesus died for. I see them as people God loves, not as somebody that's younger than I am or older than I am, not many of those around, uh, or healthier than I am, or friskier than I am, or smarter than I am, or richer, or the lesser of all those, poorer or dumber, or or whatever all those may be. Uh, I see them as people whom God has on his agenda. And some of them, He has made an appointment with for me. And I will not know who they are, those appointments are, until I open my mouth and speak to them, talk to them, and develop a relationship. And then it happens. Uh, We find out what God is doing there. So we evaluate people the way Jesus did and the way he does today. And we see them as brothers and sisters in Christ, or perhaps as people we would like to see become born-again Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ. Thirdly, we live for Christ because, in verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, uh, the new has come. I am a new creation. If you're a born-again Christian, you're a new creation. You don't, you don't operate the way you used to. You don't operate the way the world does. You don't tick the way a lost person does. You're a new creation. And therefore, you live with an eternal perspective. You do things. You minister. You touch lives. You love. You build relationships. You witness the gospel. You open your mouth. You use your hands, your feet, your heart the way Jesus would, because you are a new creation and you have an eternal perspective. So first of all, the Christian is motivated. Secondly, he lives for Christ. And thirdly, in verse 18, this is the way that God means for it to be. This is the plan and perspective of God. Verse 18, all this is from God. Man didn't dream this up. This is not man's strategy. This is not some church or denominational strategy. All of this is from God. Um, um, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is that new creation. So, 
We simply say that we're just doing what God has called us to do. Fourthly, therefore, because of this being God's plan and because you are commissioned as ambassadors, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Verse 20. We represent the kingdom of God in this temporal world in which lost people live. Paul was a prisoner of Rome when he wrote to the church at Ephesus. He was not free to come and go as he would have liked. But he understood that he was an ambassador. He was a prisoner. Not many prisoners get to be ambassadors, but Christian prisoners do all the time. And Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus and he said, First of all, in chapter 6, he laid out uh, the Christian's armor. He said, use this armor. And he gives defensive armor, and he gives weapons to use against Satan. And one of those weapons is prayer. And then he says, and pray on my behalf, that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. And we found out later that there are people in the Praetorian Guard who have become Christians. Prayer has been answered, his mouth has been opened, and he has been an effective ambassador for Christ. And finally, as we look at this passage of Scripture, we see in verse 21, God's plan is summarized. This is one, this verse is one of those golden nuggets in the New Testament. Uh, for our sake, He, God, made Him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that, and there's a purpose statement, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Now, from time to time, I run into people in fact, let me give you an example. I was preaching a revival in a church, attending the men's Sunday school class the first Sunday of the revival. <clears throat> and a man of great stature and dignity and respect and officialdom in that community, highly respected by everybody, and what he said carried a lot of weight. And he began, he was not the teacher, he was the man in the class, but he began the hour by saying, that he did not see the wisdom in witnessing to people as we go through our daily lives. He said, I just don't think that's right. He said, I let them see my Christianity in my life. Now, I'm sitting there about three feet from this man. And if we and all the men in the church in the class are saying, yeah, uh-huh, they're agreeing with this. That's good. Because the man has their respect. He has their following. But he's wrong. If he's right, Jesus is wrong. If he's right, the Apostle Paul is wrong. If he's right, the Scripture is wrong. And I cannot keep my mouth closed. We cannot abide this wrong teaching. And I have to open my mouth. And I say to him, well and good, 
But when people see your righteousness, that draws them to you, not to Jesus. And you are showing them a Christian life and saying you are saved by doing good works, not by God's grace. Well, you could hear a pin drop (laughs) on the carpet. (laughs) And the class agreed with me. (laughs) Yeah, uh uh-huh. Well, it's not the point. The point is that's what God says. Um, I have to say to you, the man did not support the revival. I have to say to you, I'm sure I was not in his list of most popular people. It matters not. Let me ask you this question. Take this verse 21. The nugget of the gospel. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And people see your righteousness that God has given you. How does that explain to them the atoning death of Jesus that verse 21 talks about? How does your good life explain that to them unless you open your mouth? Your mouth must be open to communicate where this is coming from. It cannot happen any other way. And if you do that without opening your mouth, you are leading people astray to good works salvation rather than salvation by Jesus atoning death. And God's grace that he gives to you. A righteous life, as Paul is presenting it here, is witness. But this witness validates the spoken witness that you have. Got it? The spoken witness is validated by your righteous life. If you have a spoken witness without a righteous life, it falls on deaf ears. But a spoken witness with the righteousness of God is validated. And God's Holy Spirit comes through with power to impact greatly that life that sees and hears that witness. David Platt in his book, Radical, tells about being in Sudan. And war had raged and ravaged the country. Thousands and thousands of the Christian people have been slaughtered, killed. There's great devastation. And he's sitting one evening talking with a young Sudanese Christian friend named Bullen. Bullen, young man, had been separated from his family when he was a child, grew up without family. Somebody shared with him and brought him to the Lord. He's a Christian, has no resources. He's a friend now of David Platt. And they're sitting there drinking hot tea on a hot evening. He has a broad, generous smile. And when he smiles, it just lights up the place. 
It's like his teeth light up. You can get the picture. And as they chat, Bullen says to David Platt, David, I am going to impact the world. Bullen, how are you going to impact the world? I'm going to make disciples of all nations. So, you're going to impact the world by making disciples of all nations. Broad grin. Why not? Brothers and sisters, why not? Good question. That's my question. That's your question. I want to come to a time when we make a commitment. This is commitment time. We talked about it. We prayed about it. It's time to make a commitment. I want to say, first of all, for those who are here who have never become a follower of Jesus, you watched him, you've seen him from afar. That's why you're here, actually. But you've not committed yourself to being his follower. You've not trusted him as your savior. You've not surrendered to him. And you do not have the gift of eternal life. Jesus died on your behalf. To pay for your sin. He rose from the grave. In conquest of death. To authenticate. The validity. Of his atonement. He died to pay for your sin. And he offers you. On that basis. That your sin has been paid for. He offers you forgiveness of sins, and the gift of eternity with him if you will surrender to him. We talk about accepting him as your savior, and there's truth in that. But the real thing is, you're not doing him a favor. He's done you the favor. He extends grace to you. You give yourself to him. He's already given himself to you and he is calling you to become his follower as the scripture says for your sake God made Jesus who was without sin to be sin so that in him you might become the righteousness of God will you do that will you do that now Secondly, if you have already made that surrender to Jesus, he calls his followers as followers to be his ambassadors, to be his representatives, to be his agents in this world in which we live, and in doing that, to make disciples. 
Why not? Pray with me, will you please? Our Father, our prayer is simply that your spirit and your truth and your love will draw those of us here who do not yet follow Jesus to be his followers, to be surrendered to him, to become born-again followers of Jesus. And to say so, to be out and out about it. And even as we give this time of invitation, to meet me at the front and say, Pastor Glenn, I am now committing to be a follower of Jesus. And to Christians, ambassadors, to make a commitment to follow Jesus as ambassadors to open our mouths, to build relationships, to express the truth and the love and the ministry of Jesus with hearts and hands and mouths and eyes and feet and with the truth of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray your spirit to have your way with each one of us. Now is commitment time. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.